shirt front, Mr. Putin. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> because I want the to do you slowly. If you don't vote for the Liberal National Parties, then Anthony Albanese will be the Prime Minister of Australia. Welcome to Edge of the Election, Edge of the Crowds Politics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie. And after a week off, I'm joined by Rory and Joel. So how are the two of you on this eventful week? Yeah, pretty good. I haven't heard any real big news this week, so uh, it'll be a pretty quiet one. Mm. Yeah, just enjoying my week off amongst other things in the past week. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... We took a week off, but the UK definitely didn't because they've dominated the rest of the world's uh, news for the past couple of days, uh, starting with them getting a new prime minister that decided there could only be one Liz in the country because the Queen is dead. Um, and we now have a new king in England, Australia, and 30-something other countries. But it's definitely been a big week. There's been lots of mixed reactions. Um, so I guess what were our initial reactions waking up on Friday morning to the news? Well, I, I didn't wake up to it. I had like that, the news that she was sick came through it. I think it was about nine o'clock and I decided, well, we're going to stay up and see how this goes. And uh, we just followed it along. I think there was a change of uh, change in tone from the BBC about 11.30 our time and from there we like it was pretty clear that she was dead. It was just the media wasn't able to say anything yet and then it came through at about 3 o'clock. So, yeah, it wasn't awfully surprising. And, of course, she's 96 years old, so, you know, it was going to happen eventually. And, uh, yeah, pretty pretty big news, but uh, obviously doesn't affect us too much. Yeah, um, I, I stayed up fairly late that night, but not late enough to actually hear it. Uh, but I did, of course, uh, get the get the vibe from BBC and from the, the way things were happening on Twitter that the Queen uh, was in the process of dying. Um, yeah, well, when, when I woke up and it was confirmed, um, you know, like, I, 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 I don't think I took, like, pleasure in it, but, uh, but I was quite ambivalent. I just, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care that much. Uh, the, you know, I don't think it changes much about how the, how the monarchy functions, like it's still going to continue as, as it was essentially. Um, I guess one thing to to take some uh, take some solace in is that uh, you know good political consequences for the Republican movement in Australia. So um, I'm I'm glad about that um, and about what it, what it means for um, our relation to the, the monarchy. Yeah, I went to bed at about the time when they were like everyone is going to Balmoral, and that was when I was like, okay, she's probably gone or this just turns into a complete nothing story and it was that meeting Liz Trust was very distressing um but then I woke up at like 4 a.m just out of nowhere <laughs> looked at my phone and my CNN app was like the queen has died and I was like oh and then I went back to sleep for two hours so you know <laughs> that was my like basic reaction to it um I think that there is a small level of a dramatic kind of humour in her dying in a jubilee year. Uh, she became queen in 1952, obviously, but for the past 30-odd years, uh, the years ending in two have been eventful ones. I mean, 1992 is the year that was dubbed Annus Horilibus, Her however you actually say it, because all of her kids got divorced and also 
uh, Windsor Castle burned down 2002. Her mum and her sister both died early in the year. 2012, um, I mean, the Olympics, she got to meet James Bond, so that's cool. 2022, obviously she passes away, but not before she gets to meet Paddington. Um, and you know what? If I got to meet Paddington, I would also say I'm done and dusted right there. So, you know, I think that's a good way to end, especially with the celebration that the Platinum Jubilee was, regardless of how you feel about it. 70 years in one job is a long time and is an impressive effort. I mean, yeah, it, 70 years in a job would be impressive. I mean, she didn't <laughs> apply for this job. Um, it's not like she, you know, stayed in employment uh, and also no one can take her out of the job. So, yeah, not necessarily a job in that way. It's just like she was born into it and that's how it works. But, uh, yeah, obviously uh, it's a long time and, you know, 96, it, it, you can live that long when you've got a bunch of cash and, you know, the best doctors in the world. So, yeah, obviously sad that you know, old people, someone old has died and, and all that kind of thing, a head of state. Um, I don't think it matters like who or what country they're in, in charge of if, you know, she's not a, a horrible person, as we've seen on from some people on Twitter. She's not like in charge of the things that UK does overall. But yeah, I, th- I think obviously sad that, she, like, that someone died. But you know, apart from that, not, not, not a big um, effect on me. Yeah, uh, I think I think the appropriate response to the Queen dying is the same response she maintained uh, to all the people who died because of the British Empire during her reign. That's just ambivalence. Yeah. Um, you know, she, she, she didn't kill those people, but she didn't really care about them either. Um, I, I, that's the same way I feel about the Queen. Um, yeah, I just, um, I'm sure she was maybe an okay person personally. I just don't care that much. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm definitely personally ambivalent. Um, I think that there's been some funny memes. I think that there's also been some memes that were poor taste. I think that overall on both ends of the spectrum, there has been some overreactions. Um, the people that are like, oh, my God, how dare you be sad? Like, I, I'm not going to make fun of my mum for being bummed out. Like, my mum likes the Queen. She's not like a staunch monarchist or anything. She just likes the Queen and I'm not going to make fun of her for being bummed out about it. But at the same time, I'm not going to tell someone off for making memes and making jokes. Like, people cope in their own ways is one argument, but also, like, the British Empire and the British monarchy has done a lot of things wrong and ultimately the Queen and the royal family should still be labelled as colonists. I know that that's, like, now suddenly a controversial take, but... You've got to remember that when they go on those royal tours, they are trying to secure Britain's place in the Commonwealth and secure that place of power, which is still colonialism at work. Just because they haven't been doing a very good job of it for the past 20 odd years doesn't mean that's not what they're doing. Um, Because if they are not doing that, they are socialites with a title. And that is realistically all they are anyway. I think that you can be bummed out about it, you can also have fun with it. I think that there are jokes that have been as much in good taste that are people that like the Queen as much as there's been ones that are in bad taste. Anyone that's saying that you can't make jokes and it's disrespectful, you're being a dickhead. And the policy really should just be don't be a dickhead. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the policy that you should take into most things in life. But, yeah, as you said, colonialism is, you know, that's that's where the criticism come from, right, uh, all over the world. Um, if we go back to when she became queen, like she was in Kenya on the day that she became queen, queen when her dad died. And, uh, you know, she was there to further the cause of colonialism, right? And that continued throughout her reign and it continues now. 
And uh, it doesn't look like the royal family is going to move away from that at any point. So, yeah, the criticism is all pretty valid. And, you know, some of the best stuff has come, come out from Ireland this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there's been just some some unjustifiable moral grandstanding from a lot of people uh, over the past few days, you know, from the, from the monarchists, it's, um, it's the, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's criticizing anyone who has a laugh about it. Um, when like, yeah, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone's compelled to, to respect the queen really. I, you know, I, I, I've never respected her. I don't, like, there's no, there's no obligation to, I, I see no reason why, why we need to. Um, I, I think it's, perfectly fine to have a laugh about her being dead really it's good it's a good meme um but yeah but i think as i know there's been some moral grandstanding from people making the jokes as well where it's i don't know there's some uh some drive to try to have like this this higher moral purpose for taking the piss out of the queen's death and it's like yeah, you know or, or, or whatever I, I don't think you really need to make it seem like you taking the piss is like some moral crusade like you, you know it's just a, it's just a good meme um and yeah you're doing this in some uh for some for like the the purposes of like decolonization or anything it's just it's just a good meme just chill out of it you know um so that, that, that's my take generally i think it's a good meme but just sort of leave it at that and don't take it too seriously yeah my major takeaway is that god save the queen is a better national anthem than advanced australia fair i, I think that's definitely yeah. true and God Save the King is worse than God Save the Queen. It just doesn't have that quite the tonal yes. shift as far as getting King out than Queen just doesn't hit the same. Um, but we do have a king, and uh, he's gone by King Charles III, which uh, historically is a surprising reaction just simply because uh, King Charles is a one and one for the monarchy getting abolished in England. <laughs> um, and it's not like King Charles II had a great time as king compared to uh, King Charles I. But uh, Charles has gone with Charles III. Um, ultimately, I don't think it matters. I think it would have been interesting and actually genuinely could have started a really good conversation had he gone with a different reigning name just because you damn well know that the media would be on that like correctly from the start of going by George the Seventh or Edward the Ninth or however whatever he chose to be styled as. Well, yeah, I as I said earlier, I, I just don't think that we're at the point anymore where um, monarchs are going to change names. Uh, it's you know they're in the media way too much for uh, for that to happen. You know, Charles has been known as Charles for seventy what is he seventy four years old, so it's that long, and then you know it'll be the same for for Will and then uh, who's it after that George. So, yeah, it'll, I think that's just the way it's going to be from now on. The, the idea that they're going to change names is uh, a little bit outdated. So, yeah, yeah, that is what it is. But, yeah, a king, uh, a change after qu- quite a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> good for Charles. Good for him. Yeah. Um, but I guess as far as talking about, like, republicanism, we're not actually going to turn our attention to Australia first because... There are other countries that are actually saying that uh, becoming a republic in the near future is more likely. And one of those is Antigua and Barbuda, who their politicians are saying that a vote for independence is coming. Um, And this is obviously off the back of the Queen dying, but also off the back of two woeful Caribbean tours in 2022. 
Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely right. I think that we saw that, you know, in in twenty twenty two, the the sentiment in the Caribbean is that uh, the monarchy is outdated there, and that was shown by those tours. Obviously, it was not a warm reception, that's for sure. And uh, Barbados went independent earlier this year as well. So there's definitely a movement uh, in that part of the world to go independent. And you know, this is going to be the start of what I'd assume is quite a few around the world that might go down that that road. Yeah, it's going to start a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a slope, I suppose. You know, a bit of a um, I don't know what's the metaphor, like a like a, I like a, a ball that grows that goes along. You know, uh, it's going to start one of those. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like the dung beetle a, rolling a snowball. ball. A yeah, snowball it's, effect. yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, like cool. snowball effect. You know, it's going to like pick up pick up uh, pick up steam as it goes along. Um, yeah, uh, so I think we can expect to see that in the Caribbean, especially. And probably across most of the Commonwealth, I would suspect. Yeah, I mean, even without talking about Australia and New Zealand, like there's already the conversation about Irish unification, um, Scottish independence from the United Kingdom, which is still relevant to um, the monarchy, even though the my understanding is sentiment is still that they would keep the monarchy. Even a conversation about Wales gaining independence is growing. Um, it's not just about the uh, outer colonies anymore wanting to leave. It's also what's happening inside. And an expensive coronation and an expensive funeral is going to push that sentiment further because it's obviously going to affect uh, the United Kingdom, but it's also, it's going to affect these countries that are a part of the Commonwealth that now have to change a whole bunch of stuff purely because... Um, We've got to change the portraits. We've got to change letterheads for things, um, which adds up very quickly. Yeah, definitely right. And you know, the obvious one is the money, right? That's all got to change as well. Um, the Mint announced that it's going to take time and then they're not going to like rush into a transition over the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, it's something they've been preparing for, but they're not going to like... In the past, what they've done is, you know, they've stopped all uh, cash that was that had the former monarch's head on it, that's that's not going to be what happens anymore. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ramifications. And, you know, as we were saying, that the independence uh, movements are just going to keep keep rolling on. And, you know, in the Caribbean, Australia, there'll be a conversation about it. Um, New Zealand, Canada, uh, the majority of Canadians apparently want to get rid of the monarchy as well. So uh, we'll see how that moves over the next well, probably 20 years of the Charles, Charles era. Yeah, I think nowadays, like, a lot of this stuff isn't, like, that big a deal. It's like, you know, yeah. with the mint, you just find, it, find a new person to slap on there and then just start printing that. And it's not it's not the biggest deal in the world, I think. Um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of these traditions about being really super strict with uh, with how, how like, the the, 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 go, the current monarch is integrated into the into the institutions, I, I think people just are a bit more lax with these. I don't care as much. So I don't think I don't think it will be it's that big a deal. Um, and yeah, I think I think the money will change, the letterheads will change, everything will change like pretty pretty easily uh, and without much fuss. Yeah, I rest in peace to the five dollar note because that's potentially going to change. And I mean, that's the best note that we have currently. Um, and also, like the, my understanding is, and I predicted this almost like as soon as people started asking questions about the money is that next year will still be a very high minting year. It just won't be exceedingly high. Um, And it's that we will slowly see the currency with Queen Elizabeth's face on it exit um, the pool. It's going to take 10 to 20 years for it to be completely gone though. 
I mean, we what changed the five dollar note, which was the first one of the new type of note, yep. eight years ago now, six years maybe, and I still see the old five dollar notes everywhere. So like, if you're still seeing that money in cash, just think about the fact that there's a lot of coins out there in this country. They like might make up to twenty two million coins, like dollar coins, in a year. That doesn't mean that you are going to see all of the other gold coins just exit immediately. It's just that banks will hold more of them up. But as far as Australia is concerned, we do get a public holiday. There was a little bit of chat that maybe we won't. Um, And additionally, on top of that, a lot of chat of what's the point in having the royals if we're not going to get a free public holiday when someone dies. Uh, And lucky for Victorians, it's going to be on Thursday the 22nd because... Dan Andrews obviously put in a good word for us and was like, nah, four-day weekend. Don't don't rob Victoria of a public holiday just because we have the most frivolous public holiday in the country. Yeah, great electoral politics from Dan Andrews to make sure the Queen died so that they could get a four-day weekend before the election. Really smart stuff there. Um, yeah, a four-day weekend, can't, can't go wrong there. I think most of the country will probably take a four-day weekend, though. Like, come on, no one's going to work on Friday, are they? So... Yeah, public holidays are good. That's probably the, the best thing to come out of this, I would have thought. Yeah, um, I, I'm not really affected by, like, public holidays that much because, like, you know, I, I sort of just choose my my, my uni periods. And, um, and so, and, like, I, I, yeah, I don't work anywhere where, like, I'll get a free day either because I work myself. So it's like, you know, I'm good for everyone else. Enjoy your day off. I'll, I'll, I'll be toiling. But, yeah. It does. There is like in a way a conversation surrounding the public holiday because every state almost is going to have two public holidays inside of three weeks. Obviously, Victoria gets it all at once, but the likes of New South Wales and WA are getting their public holiday on the first uh, Monday of October as well as the 22nd now. And obviously, small businesses, not going to love it. Casual workers, is, are probably the ones that are going to get hurt the most. I almost think that this Thursday, the 22nd, benefits them because even if you are a small business, it doesn't benefit you to stay closed on that Thursday because Thursday is just a shopping day for most people. And it, of that weekend, at least in Victoria, uh, it, may be, it might be a drinking day, but it's going to be a drinking and shopping kind of day because there'll be plenty of people in the city that day uh, with cash to spare. Um and there'll be more shit to do. Yeah, public holidays, yeah, as you said. I, I wouldn't be, think that uh, things are going to close, especially with, you know, grand final weekend. It's going to stay open as long as you can before that happens. Um, the, the big one, though, is obviously we're going to lose the Queen's birthday. That's, uh, that's a public holiday that's going to disappear. And then I guess we get the King's birthday, but that is November the 14th. So it looks like we get another uh, holiday towards the end of the year, which I'm not in favour of. I wish, like, we need some days off in the middle of the year. That's, that's what it? I'm looking for. Okay, like to be fair though, the Queen's actual birthday was April 21st or something like yeah, that. So yeah. it can stay where it is. I know some people think that like the Queen's birthday weekend is actually based on Queen Victoria's birthday, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense given that WA has Queen's birthday in October. Um, but you know, WA is going to do whatever it wants <laughs> at yeah, the well, same that's, time. That's true. Um, but also just with that, like, I think that the concern for people is actually genuinely losing a public holiday. Another public holiday in November, not great, not going to lie. But you can find a reason and an argument to just have a public holiday in July. Like 
there's not actually any reason to not to. It's always been the perfect for the school terms uh, since Australia's gone to the four-term system because that's basically when the term two school holiday starts. So, or it's the middle of those holidays. Um, it's a good way to break up the year. If we go from April 25th until grand final weekend for Victoria, because we'll be the first ones to get it, uh, that's insane. And people will not be happy about it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, to be honest with you. Hopefully, at least for this year, we get one in November as well, because just the more public holidays, the better. Uh, but there has already been chitter-chatter about uh, the Republic and whether the Labor government will push for a Republic referendum this term. Uh, and Albo's been quite explicit in saying that the intention has never been to have a referendum regarding uh, Australia becoming a republic this term. Uh, they intend to stick to that plan. The Uluru Statement to the Heart is still the number one priority, uh, which I think is an interesting take because I think almost if you focus on the republic, you can get what you want with the Uluru Statement to the Heart. There's a lot of things that you can push to be getting changed at once rather than having to do three or four votes, um, which is how this Republic and all the statements of the heart could turn out. Yeah, I look, I think the position there at the moment, it looks like like both could fail and that's not ideal. So I think splitting it up is the best way to do it, argue it, argue each one on its own merits and then and then go from there. Um, yeah, like if we became a Republic, we'd have to change the constitution anyway. So that, that's that's the argument to do it all at once. But for, for me, it doesn't make sense just because of that. The risk you take that, oh, well, this is too much change at once. I'm just going to vote no. So, yeah, that, that's the way that, that I go. Split it up and, you know, they're basically just taking Bill Shorten's policy from 2019 and continuing that. His plan was one referendum each term while he was in and well, obviously that never eventuated. So uh, we're just going to continue down that, that path, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, like, like personally, I, I, I like I can, I think thematically they work together, but like I think in terms of political will, they they, they don't work. They don't work that well together. Uh, we we've seen with, with Chile, which we'll get into more later, that when you try to stuff too much into one uh, one suite of reforms, like people just don't like that much change happening at once, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, obviously, I think they're they're connected, right? In terms of becoming a republic and getting a voice in the. Uh, they're like a reckoning with the colonial history and moving forward into a into a, like a more harmonious uh, contemporary future. Um, so yeah, I, I would, personally, I'd like to see them sort of come together, but I understand why why we probably should keep them apart, even if it is inefficient. Yeah, I my argument isn't even a really entirely about efficiency. I think that you are more likely to get both up if you push for the Republic first because once the Republic wins, um, if you're running by that narrative, you can sneak parts of the Uluru Statement of the Heart in quite easily um, through that, like, essentially doorway. But because... <laughs> what's the best way to put it essentially once we vote that yes we are going to become a republic the constitution has to change you like you just flat out can't keep it which means that there then becomes a focus and a negotiation around what the constitution is you yes get three votes almost automatically if you're going to go with the Uluru statement of the heart first provided the republic vote gets up but also 
if you do the Uluru Statement of the Heart, it gets up and then the Republic gets up. There is not going to be a lot of appetite in the country for another conversation around um, how the country is going to be governed. I think it's just going to irritate a lot of people, which is going to swing it more towards a quite conservative push that then almost like might negate the entire Republic vote in the first place. Um, It's hard to say. I think that the best thing for the Republican movement um, coming out of the Queen's death is potentially Labor government just spending a shitload of money um, and winning over some people that are fiscally conservative that are socially kind of ambiguous. They don't really lean one way or the other, but they go, why the hell is the government spending so much money on a family that is 20,000 kilometres away? Like, and that kind of narrative where it's just like, why, like, why are we doing this? Like, can't we just be a republic? That sort of thing. It might not, it might backfire and there's every chance it could. But I think that it is almost a strategic risk of like turning the monarchy like the people of the country against the monarchy just by the fact that it's reckless spending. Uh, unfortunately, in my experience, um, the, those sorts of people uh, argue the Republic costs more through, um, through the cost of maintaining a president uh, and through the, um, and through like the loss of uh, like tourism revenue from not having a monarch visiting anymore. Um, and all and all these things. So apparently, we end up losing more money from it. Um, I, I don't I don't know if that's true or not. I don't particularly care either. <laughs> um, um, I, I think the costs are, are negligible, and I would rather an expensive republic to um, to a to a cost free monarchy anyway. Um, I, I see I see the reasoning, but that, that in in my experience, that's what these sorts of people tend to be like. They, they, they still find a way to justify the monarchy anyway. Yeah, as much as I like to make fun of Australia and say that we're not as big as we are, we're also not as small as we think we are, and a monarchy will still visit. Um, like, the rulers of... We're still, like, we're still a former colony. There's still that history tied there. They still visit the United States from time to time. It's not like they are never going to come back to Australia and that no royals are ever going to come back to Australia. It's a nice part of the world. They're going to come. Um so you are still going to get that tourism revenue. You know what's better for tourism revenue? Uh, movies getting made here because we're going to make a lot of money off tourism in the next like decade or so just because of the sheer amount of Marvel movies that get made in Australia these days. Yeah, I, th- I think the cost argument's not really important. It's the it's the principle of it that's going to get argued, and um, it's yeah, it, it's just about that principle and, and who can win that argument. Obviously, the Republic didn't win it last time. Part of that's just like bad planning. And I think the, the most important thing to do is to find one argument that's going to work and just keep pushing through at that. At the end of the day, though, that's that's a term away. Like the Labor government could still fuck this up and lose the next election. Um, there's every chance of that because you know the Labor governments, uh, Labor governments like to fuck things up. So yeah, that's I think that's probably too far off to really worry about at this point and you know, they should just focus on the, the voice to begin with and and hopefully that gets passed but you know i'm i'm slightly worried about it but sticking with the uk because as i alluded to at the start of the episode uh, the uk does have a new prime minister and it is liz truss and 
whilst it's really funny to say that this is a 30-year psyop from a Liberal Democrat who was talking about abolishing the monarchy in the 90s, um, she met the Queen because she is Prime Minister and now she's gotten to meet the King. Um, And I think that this is a huge loss for the Tories overall because Liz Truss is not a popular figure. Up to 12 Tory MPs were intending to uh, submit um, letters of no confidence as soon as she became the Prime Minister. Um, It's not confirmed whether that ended up happening just because of everything that happened, but that was the intention before she was actually declared Prime Minister. Um, So it's not looking great for the Tories, but definitely looking great for Labor in the UK as well as the Scottish Nationalist Party. Yeah, the uh, the Labor Party would be very happy with this uh, this win by Liz Truss. She's like she's uh, you know more right wing than Boris Johnson without the fun of Boris Johnson. Um, so yeah, I, look, I don't think she's going to do very well. And, and Keir Starmer's way ahead in, in head to head polling there. Um, the Labor Party's like projections are looking at eighty seat majority for the Labor Party, which um, six months ago seemed impossible. Uh, we were suggesting that you know, the, the Labor Party is it's effectively impossible for them to win a majority uh, government without the help of the SNP. That no longer looks like the case. Um, they should win the next election, which will come. Well, it's going to be quite a quite a while away, but it'll come eventually. And then, yeah, I would think Liz Truss is going to lose. She's just yeah, not all that popular, and it once again shows the disconnect between the general public and then members of political parties. And we saw it with uh, Jeremy Corbyn as well. We're like. Uh, big numbers of Labor Party voters voted for Jeremy Corbyn, but that didn't really translate to the general public. And I think the Conservative Party is having the same issue with Liz Trust now. Looking back at the at the last election, you think about why Boris Johnson won. It's just that the, the factors that were there then don't seem to be there now with Liz, yeah. with Liz Trust. Where it seems that, like, on some level, Boris Johnson had like a connection, quote unquote, with our uh, I mean, a lot of those working people in the areas that. Um, in the areas that the Tories needed to win, uh, Liz Truss, I don't think has that at all. Um, then furthermore, you know, you know, you don't have Jeremy Corbyn running this one as well. Um, so, like, like you said, Rory, like Keir, Keir Starmer seems to be seems to enjoy broader support. Um, he doesn't have the whole um, you know, fear campaign running against him as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, look uh, it doesn't seem to be the most strategic pick for PM, but. Um, or for candidate, um, but I'm not sure who really is either. So, (laughs) yeah, I think that there was a lot, there's a lot working against the Tories going into this next election just purely because they don't have Brexit as a weapon. I think that even though people were sick of hearing about the Brexit conversation, that did win the Tories' votes at the last election just purely because there was enough people in the UK populace that were probably just like. Just get it done. Like, we're going to have to keep hearing about this for 20 years if Labor gets in. So let's get the Tories back in and have them get through Brexit. Um, look, I'm, I'm not a fan of Brexit, but <laughs> at the same time, like, at least it's done and dusted and it's not going to continue being a conversation. Um, yeah, as you put it, Rory, Liz Trust is basically just Boris Johnson and Thatcher combined without the fun of Boris and... She's not as scary looking as Thatcher, to be fair. Um, no one is scary looking as Thatcher. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I just I don't think that it's a 
good time to be a Tory. I don't think she's going to last until 2025, though. Um, unless an early election is called, I do not think she makes a general election. Um, she's already too unpopular within the party that if you told me in 2025 Boris Johnson is actually the one that is the Tory PM again, I'd be like, yeah, I believe it because Liz Truss is not going to last. Yeah, I th- that's definitely a possibility. I think it could be another Theresa May situation where you just call an election early um, and, and hope that that works out. But who knows? Like the idea that she lasts three years is uh, is ridiculous, right? She's incredibly unpopular. It's kind of like Peter Dutton, right? Just incredibly unpopular um, outside of the party, whether you win or not within the party is another question. But yeah, outside the party, the numbers are going down. The recent conservative polling had them at 28% in the country with Labor. Uh, somewhere between 40 and 45%. They're, they're not numbers you can run an election on. So, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, she will have to go at some point. It just depends whether that's an early election and she goes that way or um, if they decide to, as you said, put Boris in or, or try to find someone that's a little bit more stable and uh, I wouldn't say more popular, but more... Um, Kane. Just a, just a, yeah, just a blank canvas that they can just... Put a put up in an election. No, I threw the name Ben Wallace out quite early on um, in the election campaign, at least within the Tory Party election campaign, um, and he quite quickly like went out of contention just by taking his own name out of the hat. But I think that he is the best chance for the Tories, and even then, I don't think he's a great chance for the Tories. I don't think that. Richie Sunak is going to work for them. I, Boris Johnson maybe somehow could do it. But even then, like, Boris is bumbling enough that it's charming and funny at first, but six years of it, people don't actually have the appetite for when there's nothing to really fight for. Um, the, the thing that might help them ultimately is if um, the coronation and all of the changes with King Charles um, goes off without a hitch, goes off without too much expense, um, and they somehow find a way to do something for the working people in the next 12 days because the UK is as much, if not in a worse cost of living crisis than Australia right now, and they've actually, like, so many businesses are closed for the next 12 days, Um and if they're not going to do something to supplement people's incomes, people are going to be in worse states than they were before the Queen died. And it wasn't pretty before then. Yeah, I, I've seen reports of, uh, like, electricity bills are the big issue in the UK at the moment. I've seen reports of uh, businesses' electricity bills going up 500% this year. So there was one, uh, I believe it was a bakery who's, uh, was their electricity bill the previous year was eleven thousand pounds and this year it's gone up to fifty five thousand. That's just uh, impossible to keep up with, obviously. And you know this government's part of it. Um, obviously, there's bigger factors as well. But yeah, I think every government has an end date, and you know they've been in power since twenty ten. That's twelve years. It'll be fifteen by the time the election comes around. And uh, you know that's just it's too long. And uh, the, you know the the Tony Blair Labor Party government was in power for 13 years. So it's it's kind of, yeah, every, every government has an end date and we've seen it plenty of times before. Yeah, it's certainly cyclical. And, I mean, the UK loves themselves a long term in power and then uh, sometimes a brief exit for a long return. But 
at the same time, like Thatcher was in for 11 years. Blair was obviously 13. You go back to like the Wilson government, which was the big Labor government before that. And then obviously you've got Churchill and all of that. Um, so look, I don't think it's going to be Labor jumps in for five years and then jumps back out by any means if they do win. Um, but at the same time, I honestly, do I think that the United Kingdom stays together for another full election? Probably not. Um it just all depends on what the appetite is for Scottish independence ultimately because I think that that's going to be the first one to fall if they're allowed to have their referendum. It's, it, the, the big question is if, right? Yeah. Uh, but we'll move back to Australia because some polling came out last week uh, and it's looking better and better for Albo because he's gone up another 2% in preferred PM at 61% now. Whereas Peter Dutton continues to drop down despite the fact that no one really is seeing him anywhere. And he's sitting at 22%. So last week we said that it was good that no one was seeing him. Apparently, according to the voters, it, it's still not really helping the Liberals that much. Yeah, and now there's going to be another two weeks out, out of Parliament where he's not going to be seen. So, yeah, it's um, he's kind of disappeared. And, you know, maybe that is actually helping him. His numbers could be lower, so... Uh, yeah, but Albanese is obviously the, the honeymoon phase doesn't seem to be over and him going to the UK, being seen with the, the new king, all that kind of thing will probably help him a little bit with with some segments of the, the voting uh, population, probably traditional non-Labor voters. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll just keep rising and hopefully take some momentum into the next election. But, uh, you know, it's a long way off. So these these polling numbers, they just reflect how popular he is not really what's going to happen with the next election. Uh, I mean, he's just running a steady bipartisan government. Uh, There's not much uh, for people to actively dislike, I suppose, unless you're quite, you know, heavy heavy into the intricacies of policy and welfare and stuff. Um, But I think for for most people, he he just seems to be like a a good figurehead for the Australian nation. Um, Seems like a a nice enough bloke personally. And that seems to be like the big thing for Australians. I think it's just... Can I can I have a pint with this guy? Um, and most Australians seem to think, yeah, I can have a pint with Albanese. So um, <laughs> it's good for the Labor's political prospects, I suppose. Uh, maybe not a good political trend long term, but whatever. I mean, people have definitely found a reason to have a sook about Albo, especially like today alone. There was just plenty of whinging about the fact that he was like, ICAC will have legislation by the end of this year and people were like but you said it would be legislated and implemented by the end of this year and we've said it on this pod that like just because it's legislated and that sort of thing ICAC is not going to be ICAC or federal ICAC at least um in the next 12 months even like it's going to take time and the fact that it's people essentially stamping their feet like little children being like but I want it now um, it, it's a little bit absurd. It's obviously Parliament now not sitting for another 15 days doesn't help its cause, but I think we all knew that this was going to take time and it's better that it takes time, not because, oh, some pollies are going to get to, like, protect themselves ever so slightly, but because you want ICAC to succeed. You shouldn't want the federal ICAC to fail and if they rush into it, it's going to fail. Yeah, I... Like he said, it was going to be legislated by the end of the year, and uh, that could happen. We'll see what happens. But um, 
yeah, look, there's plenty of things to criticise the government on. Uh, probably nothing major like there was in the last government. At least it's stuff that's not, you know, you criticise this government on policy-based stuff. It's not, you know, Scott Morrison disappearing or, you know, just their ministers being idiots. So they're, they're running a much tighter ship, that's for sure, and, and that's what's caused these numbers to stay as high as they have. Um, the ICAC stuff, it'll, it'll get passed eventually, and I'm sure we'll see some results from it eventually as well. We'll get our ICAC eventually, but at the same time, like, you know, be honest about it as well. Like, if we're not going to get the ICAC this year, probably don't promise it. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think it's fair enough to be, like, a little annoyed about that. Uh, probably not justified to be massively annoyed um, or to, you know, really hold it against the government that much. Um, but, yeah, if you make a promise, probably hold the political promise, I would say. I just, I think that there is a difference between it being legislated and it actually being properly implemented. Um, and this, it could, they could start implementing it by the end of this year. It's not going to be fully implemented though. And if you thought that, then you have the concept of politics like a four-year-old child because it just, nothing moves quickly in Parliament House. Um, and le- unless, of course, it's giving like tax breaks to billionaires, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, we might move on to Chile, though, which Joel hinted at, because there was a referendum on the new constitution and it was a resounding failure. Um, in the end, it was a 61 to 38 vote. I'm not going to get into the point X of a percentage. Um, but what was considered to be a pretty progressive constitution um, was voted down and it's quite unfortunate because some of the things you'd think like it shouldn't, like it would almost lead you to voting yes automatically because these sort of rights are just fundamental human rights. But nope, the population of Chile thought that the constitution was too much at once. Yeah, well, major change by anything other than revolution is incredibly difficult. Like you can't, it's hard to legislate a revolution and essentially that's what they're trying to do by changing this much of the constitution at once. Um, you know, they won the last election by uh, just over 10%. And uh, this got voted down pretty heavily. So look, over 80% of Chileans wanted a redraft of the constitution, but that doesn't mean they're all on the same side, right? Like there's plenty of you know right-wing people that also want that redraft and then there's plenty of left-wing people and they just couldn't meet in the middle there. So um, they'll have to, you know, get back to the drawing table and, and rewrite something and hope it passes a second time around. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, with the constitution, you just got to be careful um, because obviously I read this constitution and I'm like, you know, I love this is pretty good stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not like the, the median voter um, and the, the constitution is sort of designed for not just the median voter of today, but like the median voter of like, a century or so from now um and unfortunately i don't think this constitution really hit that um there's there's some weird stuff in here like, i'm not sure if like a constitution needs to have like diversity quotas really that's probably a bit too much for a constitution and um, there's a lot of really good strong stuff though a lot of the stuff for indigenous rights um and for housing rights and these sorts of things like quite strong um so what you would expect from like you know like the un human rights charter really um, but yeah, um, the, the, the nation didn't really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, I don't really know where they go from here. They're probably going to come, come with another draft. Um, and I mean, hopefully that one's more popular. Uh, hopefully like a lot of the big things stay. Like I think the, the indigenous rights stuff is pretty important there for like a lot of the, 
uh, the, the Mapuche uh, people of Chile. Um, and, um, you know, just a lot of the, the, you know, a lot of the big economic stuff as well, guaranteeing basic uh, minimum standards of living and that sort of thing. Like, hope all this stays. I think there's a few things that can probably be dropped um, and hopefully that will um, allow the next uh, the next referendum to uh, to succeed. Well, yeah, and I think that part of the problem is is that, like, whilst it seems obvious, a right to housing is semi-controversial because a right to housing implies that everyone should have a house and landlords don't like that because then they can't increase the prices of rent. But, like, even in the first three points of the Bill of Rights, there are two pretty controversial points, and one being the right to personal integrity, which is just... I mean, conservatives find it abhorrent that people could have physical, psychosocial, sexual and effective rights. Um, And then also this third one, which is the prohibition of the death penalty, torture, enforced disappearance, slavery, human trafficking and exile. Most of those things I think everyone agrees on. The death penalty is a controversial conversation and putting that in your constitution, whether you agree on one side or the other or not, can still really hurt your vote because someone will just go, but I think that person that commits X crime should get the death penalty. Not, no way. This is like no way in hell should this get voted for. Um, And it's little things on this that some are silly, like the right to sport. Like I like sport personally, but at the same time um, you can get a ball and kick it around in the yard. Like, is that the right to sport? Like, what does that actually mean? Um, And silly little things like that aren't helpful um I just I don't know I think that there's a lot of good in the constitution but at the same time they've almost got to make it as passive as possible whereas this one is quite full-throated which maybe that was the intention was to see what they could get away with um to start off with but at the same time I think that if you took this to any country it doesn't get up um and that's including very progressive countries yeah, I, I feel like most of the stuff that you've talked about there is stuff that could just be legislated rather than put in a constitution. Um, the constitution is meant to be like a, a legal framework of how the governments run uh, and like how those arms of power work. And that's not what this constitution is trying to do. They're trying to implement, you know, as you said, uh, a bill of rights and that kind of thing, where I think, you know, a right to housing can just be legislated. And, you know, the, uh, the government won the election. They have the right to you know, legislate what they want effectively, but uh, you know, they want to put it in a constitution instead, which I guess, you know, it f- future proofs what they're trying to do. But uh, for me, that's probably not the best way to do it. I think if people change their mind in 10 years time and they want to uh, elect a more right-wing government, that's that's up to them. Like they, they get to choose that. If they want to get rid of that right to housing or, um, you know, other rights that they're trying to include, that's, that's, uh, that's on them. So yeah, the, the, They've just tried to do too much effectively and, and it's backfired. So I think the, the best thing to do is go back to the, the drawing board, uh, work with the opposition here, find a, find a, uh, a constitution that will work and pass and, and then go from there and try to legislate as much of this progressive stuff as you can find. Yeah, I think with like this constitution and because there's like such like a, you know, such a like big indigenous population in Chile, um, you do have to have like some progressive stuff there. I think that's mainly where you need to have it. We need to have, like have some way of um, dealing with like the the Mapuche the Mapuche population, um, and yeah, sort of enshrining them like something there. 
um, to you know, to have like a well, what they were aiming for was like like a plural, a plural national state. Um, and that, that, that sounded all right, I guess. Um, I think beyond that, I, I, I would agree um, where a lot of this stuff should probably just be legislated. Um, I think like trying to enshrine a right to abortion in like a, in a Catholic country was probably a bit, uh, a bit of a, a bit ambitious. I think I'm not sure if that's the sort of thing you're going to get in the constitution for a country like Chile. Um, that's the sort of thing that you kind of need to yeah, try to change the hearts and minds of people with about over the course of several decades. Um, so I think that, that was also a bit much. Um, yeah, and like, like like Rory said, like a constitution should really just set out the the basic well you know, like constitution of the government, right? Like how is this government going to be constituted? Um, and yeah, um, so yeah, ho- hopefully the constant the next draft does that. Uh, we get to. I would still like to see uh, like a couple of these more progressive reforms. I uh, just feel like we've seen in Australia as well, like how a, a constitution that's a bit too conservative can really obstruct meaningful change. You know, trying to try and nationalise the banks, for instance. Um, and I, I don't want to later on to that issue. So hopefully they still, you know, there's still a general progressive sense to the uh, to the constitution. But um, yeah. Yeah, I I just think that you can't really win with a constitution like this and ultimately that's why they lost. Um, I think over time there is going to be some further change in Chile, but as Rory put it, like a right-wing government is eventually going to get in and, like, what are you going to do, force another change to the constitution if something like this got up? You just essentially have rolling 20-year constitutions, um, which... Some some people and some theorists think that that's the way that like countries should be governed, where the constitution changes semi regularly, but at the same time, it still creates a lack of permanence and a lack of organization within governments um, and how countries are governed that isn't conducive to running a stable country in particular. But we might move on uh, to Pakistan because. Um, <laughs> If we're going to talk about like a unstable situation, up to 33 million people are currently displaced in Pakistan due to the major flooding event. Um, It has currently killed a hundred, what, not a hundred, 1,396 people, which is the deadliest flood since the 2017 South Asian floods. Um, And even still another like 12 and a half thousand people have non-fatal injuries. So this is just a huge, uh, essentially, like, humanitarian disaster. Yeah, Pakistan is in a really tough place at the moment, obviously. Like, I don't know how much footage of this you guys saw, but it, it honestly looked like a tsunami was going through the country. That's how quick these flood waters were moving, um, like, really, really high, like, above rooftops, that kind of thing. Um, economic loss is massive, above $30 billion, 50 million people displaced, as you said. Um, thankfully, they're, they're starting to get that number down as, as the floods move past and they can um, put some work together. But, you know, there's millions and millions of people living in tents at the moment and it's largely being ignored by most of the media because this is not a, a story that, you know, people want to focus on because then it would mean we'd have to do something about it and um, the West doesn't like to do that. So... Yeah, the people that aren't, you know, that haven't died from these floods are going to, they're going to die from other things, you know, malaria through the water or, um, you know, it's effectively living in sewage at that point when there's just water everywhere. And then, um, you know, 
food resources are, are way down just because you can't get them to people and you can't grow anything, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, a tragic situation, really. Yeah, it's it's just pretty horrible. Um, we haven't heard that much about it. Um, because it's not on the news all that much, um, unfortunately. Uh, been taken, you know, been taken up by by more more British things recently. Uh, but yeah, this is that should really be like the the thing on on television screens, right? This is a, this is a serious um, a serious disaster. Um, and because of the lack of coverage and because of the lack of general concern, Pakistan, um, it seems that yeah, lots of people are going to lose their lives, and that just sucks. Yeah, and I think that the big thing that can't be forgotten is that, like, yes, the instant impact is horrible, um, but the follow-through is even worse. Like, as Rory said, people are going to deal with things like malaria. Just even the fact that people have lost their homes is going to cause people to die ultimately. Um, And this follows, like, a massive heat wave in the country. And... It's another one of these like major weather events where people are like, it's cyclical. This like area gets floods every 20 years or so. I 20 years isn't accurate as to what the number of people are talking about. But yes, Pakistan does have regular floods. That is true. Not to this level. Um, like this is a major flooding event that is affecting millions upon millions of people. People in like Sydney and stuff like that are still facing the effects of the floods at the start of July. And that is nothing compared to what's happened in Pakistan. This is at least a third, but some people are saying affecting 75% of this country. It's not a little bit of the country that is flooded. It's pretty much everything. Yeah. And then it's affecting power supplies and all that kind of thing. And it's like at the backdrop of, what is a you know a massive political situation with the prime minister previously being ousted and then the new prime minister looks like that's also going to happen to him and then Imran Khan will come back. It's a bit of a mess politically there as well and, and stuff like this obviously doesn't help that situation. So, yeah, it's definitely one to keep an eye on and hopefully, um, you know, as much help is, is coming as possible. Uh, the US is doing a little bit. Um, I saw Finland's also doing quite a lot, uh, but, you know, Australia is really... Um, not really done anything about it, which is which is just not good enough, really. Yeah. So Australia provided two million dollars in humanitarian aid, which, like, two million dollars is a lot of money, sure. Um, in a country that's apparently lost thirty billion dollars, though, like that's how much the government has anticipated to have lost. Uh, two million dollars is nothing. It, yeah, it's not even like, a drop. And thirty billion in context of what the US is giving Ukraine every month is uh, a drop in the ocean, really. Yeah, um, I just I think Australia could be doing a lot more. Granted, I think a lot of countries could be doing a lot more, um, especially the neighbouring nations. I get that there is plenty of political tensions with India and Afghanistan and other nations in the subcontinental parts of Asia. At the same time, like if you if you're if you are a country like India, if you think that this doesn't end up affecting you, you are terrible at global politics. Like there is going to be some level of refugee movement into countries like India because people need somewhere where they're able to live. Um, and ultimately, India is a country where they will be able to go to. Um, and the best way almost to prevent that is to provide humanitarian aid and to help out Pakistan um, in whatever way you can. 
Yeah, well, that would be ideal, but India also doesn't want to repair that relationship. It's very good politically for them to um, just keep hating on Muslim people. So, uh, yeah, Modi will keep that up, I would have thought. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, India, what's more important is being a strong man, right? Like, I think they're, yep. they're perfectly aware of the fact that there's going to be a refugee movement. Um, but the Hindu nationalist thing is just, uh, is just far more important to uphold. Um, is that they don't want to be seen to you know, giving any sort of ground to Pakistan and to, and to Islam. Um, I'm, I'm wondering as well how the um, how their laws around Muslim uh, Muslim migration will be affecting this refugee movement as well. Because I believe the Indian government um, exploit a particular legal loophole to just sort of kick Muslims out of, out of the country, essentially. Um, so I expect we'll be seeing a lot of that um, in um, in the next few next few years. Yeah, I just I look at it. Modi offered thoughts and prayers. Uh, whereas, and I I say that as like a joke, but his statement was essentially heartfelt condolences to the families who are those affected by the floods and hopes for early restoration of normalcy. Like <laughs> that is worse than thoughts and prayers. <laughs> like almost. Um, whereas, a, like Bangladesh, which is another neighboring enough country um provided a lot of food and blankets and that sort of thing as well as purification tablets and oral saline um like that's obviously that's not a dollar amount like what australia's done it's actually probably more helpful than what australia's offered though as well um two million dollars you don't see where that goes um five thousand uh, not five thousand 100,000 water purification tablets hopefully is going to the people that are currently like camping in tents and that is where their entire lives are currently. Yeah, well, Bangladesh is an incredibly poor country and if they can do that, then Australia can certainly do more. And uh, Bangladesh is is partly doing that in the hope that Pakistan will return the favour when Bangladesh eventually goes underwater because it will be one of the first to do so when when the oceans rise. So, yeah, pretty grim situation. Uh, but we might move on to... Please explain. Please explain. Please explain. Please explain, which has a very loose connection to Pakistan because Pakistani-Australian uh, Senator Maureen Faruqi uh, had a controversial take about the Queen passing and that was uh, a post on Twitter that was Condolences to those who knew the Queen. I cannot mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land, and the wealth of colonised peoples. We are reminded of the urgency of treaty with First Nations and justice and reparations for British colonies and becoming a republic. Um, Which naturally got a lot of backlash, um, just because as soon as you criticise someone that dies, it creates a lot of backlash generally, especially if it's the monarchy. But, of course, Pauline Hanson had to fire back. Um, And I'm not going to read her whole tweet out, but it essentially amounted to uh, go back to Pakistan uh, towards Maureen Fruki, to which my reaction is kind of like, uh, if you don't think that this criticism of the monarchy and the queen isn't connected to her Pakistani heritage, you're insane, (laughs) which credit to Pauline Hanson is insane. So, you know. Yeah, uh, just, yeah, stupid stuff from Pauline, obviously. Um, yeah, just absolutely racist, racist garbage and uh, she'll get in the bin. Um, so, like she, does, she didn't need to comment on this. I think equally, Faruqi doesn't need to make this statement uh, the day the Queen dies. 
once again, it's the Greens doing things that aren't going to make them successful uh, electorally. And I know that's not the, the first thought that probably came to mind when tweeting something like this out. Um, maybe part of it's to be controversial. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's, it's not awfully helpful. But at the end of the day, Pauline Hanson is completely wrong to, to say, send her back to Pakistan. That's um, disgusting. And yeah, not okay. And as you said, part of it's due to that Pakistan connection and what the royal family in the UK in general did across or India and Pakistan and, and that region and then throughout the world as well. Yeah, look, obviously I agree with, with what Maureen said. Um, but I, when you're a politician in parliament, like you just gotta you just gotta be careful, you know. Sometimes you gotta you gotta say stuff just to um just to you know not not piss people off really. Um and Maureen probably should have been a bit more diplomatic in presenting that message. Uh, you know, you're not a politician, go wild. I, I was I was posting memes about <laughs> rather about the queen all weekend i've got that freedom um but if you're a politician like you have to like be focused on winning votes and some that comes down to uh doing doing things they don't really want to do um and in this in this case you don't even have to tweet about it really you can just you know not tweet about it and no one will really be annoyed at you uh but yeah of course pauline's just out of line um you know i know i saw mark latham trying to trying to defend it as well um yeah the, the usual goon squad come, coming out to uh to defend whatever the the other says um but yeah it just yeah just really uh really crappy stuff um yeah but, but yeah like 97 percent of the Australian population uh is uh, comes from migrants so yep. you know it, it, <laughs> does everyone just go back to to where they to where they came from i don't know uh we weird implications there as well so yeah, just, um, just yeah, terrible from Pauline all around. Yeah, I this is either one that should have been saved to drafts or being posted on a sock puppet account. It just as easily could have gone viral getting posted on a sock puppet account. Honestly, there were a lot of tweets that were of similar tone um, that went off from accounts that had barely like two hundred followers. So. It's not like this had to come from her senator account. Um, I think that it was foolish for it to come from that. Yes, you don't have to try as hard to win votes in the Senate, but she's going to cost someone else in her party a seat as a result. Um, and that's where the issue comes because, yeah, we still got state elections coming up. And if this is what the federal Greens look like, while they're not the same, um, it does still tarnish the state Greens parties as well. Um as the Greens said, parties do that enough themselves. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> On top of that, um, I mean, yeah, Pauline Hanson, even like Jackie Lambie's comments on it are also not great. I think that people are entitled to have really complicated feelings about this situation. And I think if you are not having some level of complex feelings, um, you're simping for people that are so far away from you that like they, they do not give a fuck about you. Um, even if you write that letter to the queen or now to the king, um, yeah, sure, it comes back signed, but they, they don't care about you um, and they never will. Um, you could say the same about the people that are governing this country, but you know what? They actually have an effect on our lives. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I find all of this frustrating in a lot of ways. Um, and whilst someone like Joel clowning on the death of the queen is a very different tone to a senator. It's at the same time, like, you've got more freedom as a private citizen than a public citizen. And I think some people that are public citizens 
Mostly the Greens need to remember that from time to time. Yeah, I think the Greens fundamentally need to realise that it's not just about them and like their sort of like personality politics sometimes and like what they really believe. It's about, you know, it, well, so if, if what they care about is uh, broadening their base as a party, it, it comes down to, you know, like not, you know, not getting too wrapped up in what you uh, and what you believe deep down um, and be a bit more diplomatic in how you present yourself um, and doing the things that people care about for strange reasons um and for stupid reasons all the time but you know but still sort of doing them anyway uh, because it wins where it's um and then then you can do the stuff that actually matters the the you know bring bring in the policy reform that that actually changes people's lives and this is the sort of thing like it's it's not yeah um while while i agree and while um i i'm not particularly annoyed at marine um a lot of people are and that all that does is just mean is just mean that when it comes down to doing the things that actually matter such as you know pushing for um, increases to welfare or something, um, you have less power to do that because people are going to remember these things, um, unfortunately. Um, and I hate that, but it seems to be how politics works. So, Best way to change policy is to win, and this is the kind of stuff that doesn't help you win. So I think it's simple as that. Yeah. Um, did I say please explain at the start of that? Uh, our next item for please explain comes out of the United States because a country that, I mean, it's it's got to get some attention some way, somehow. And this time it's Republican Senator uh, John Kennedy from Louisiana. <laughs> it's possibly the most deranged take of the week. And that is that in his state of Louisiana, um, the price of gas is so high that it would be cheaper to buy cocaine and just run everywhere. Um, which, how cheap is the cocaine? That's the real question because uh, fuel's going down. Am I surprised Joel came in with the answer there? Yeah, no, this would, this would never fly in Melbourne. No. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, I have the answer here. I, I, I Googled it. So in the US, a gram of cocaine is about $120, which is actually more expensive than petrol, believe it or not. So I, I don't think John Kennedy's right on the mark, although, you know, he's in politics and God, they love it. So uh, maybe he knows exactly who to get it off that cheap. Um, interestingly, in Colombia, it's only $4 a gram. So uh, that's probably the place to go. But yeah, uh, firstly, his name's John Kennedy and he's the senator. I, that shouldn't be allowed. Um, they should ban that. He should have to change his name uh it's just a deranged take uh petrol is not especially in the u.s like they pay a lot less than what you do for that for their petrol so yes uh, a bad take a funny one though. yeah, yeah. Uh, is, is he serious uh, <laughs> i thought he was joking who knows with republicans to be honest with you <laughs> yeah the problem is is that like they say it like they're serious and then when everyone's like what the fuck <laughs> they're like no no it's a joke it's hyperbole and it's like like yeah obviously but like tonality is important and also like you guys bitch about the prices of fuel a lot despite the fact that it's been trending down for about nearly two months now um especially in the u.s it's been trending down um it's likely to potentially trend upwards again with um recent news but at the same time i still think it's not going to be as cheap uh not more expensive than cocaine and running everywhere it's hot in louisiana like it's a muggy kind of hot i ain't running anywhere in that state so it's about a dollar a liter for for petrol in the u.s so god they've got it pretty good i would have thought that's um i'll take that any day of the week uh but our next item in please explain uh 
throwing it back to Parliament um, when it was still open earlier last week uh, because Dai Li got to make her maiden speech in Parliament. Uh, and whilst it was a pretty good speech, quite an emotional speech, um, and I'm not going to take any credit away from that, uh, her outfit, on the other hand, uh, was akin to an Australian bobsledder in like the early 2000s even um, with the Australian flag. I think it was actually a dress, but the top of it did kind of look like lycra. It, yeah, it definitely looked like lycra. I thought she borrowed it off Kathy Freeman. Like it was, yeah, very much an athletic piece of clothing and uh, wearing the Australian flag, just a bit cringy for me. Um, doesn't, yeah, doesn't really add to what you're saying if, you, if you're doing that. But, you know, as you said, good speech. So um, that is what it is. I'm sure we won't hear from her for the next three years anyway. So I looked into it before the podcast and um, it's actually a traditional Vietnamese dress called, uh, called an Ao Dye, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, and the whole thing is like combining these, these, two, these two parts of her heritage being both Vietnamese but also Australian. Um, unfortunately, the Australian flag is just lame um, this is very lame oh yes i I respect the symbolism good good for daily um but unfortunately for her um the actual uh pattern she put on her dress was just not a a great one um although the 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 hour die in general seems to look pretty cool so yeah like that it's a good like traditional um outfit or I, i do actually think it is an outfit rather than a dress um but at the same time, not only is the Australian flag so ugly, but it also just sets a weird tone, I think, for a lot of people. And that's not because uh, she's a refugee. We often see that refugees are more patriotic um, to Australia and the countries that they settle in than people that were born uh, in this country. But at the same time, it's just like, oh it's a gross kind of patriotism like it's this it's the kind of of a similar tone of like seeing a guy wear the australian flag as a cape you just immediately are a bit like oh i'm getting yucky feelings about this um maybe if it was a less ugly flag it would look better but at the same time i just i'm not a big fan of people wearing flags on clothing in general um and to do it in Parliament House, I all think just ends up setting a stranger tone. Yeah, wearing an Australian flag is just like Cronulla riot vibes for me, and, and that's not okay. Um, but our last item for tonight uh, includes Malcolm Roberts, who we have not talked about in a long time. Um, and I, I enjoyed the days when he was irrelevant because he proposed some amendments to the climate change bill and... I mean, sure, if you want the oceans to rise, we put these amendments in because, I mean, he's essentially advocating for a, like a five-degree rise uh, rather than lowering it by two. Yeah, he's just having some notes on the end of the, the climate change bill that is essentially that, you know, carbon dioxide's good and that human activity has been, like, disproven for climate change and all this stuff that's just in... Completely incorrect, but Malcolm Roberts is on his own little planet that um, apparently isn't affected by climate change, so he should be okay. But, yeah, maybe he's got some, like, some not-quite-beachfront property that he really wants the ocean to get to, and that's what he's trying to do here. But, yeah, I, I don't know. He's just trying to stay relevant, as that seems to be what, like, the One Nation senators are doing at the moment. It's just trying to trying to stay in the news a little bit to, to keep that party afloat. 
I think Fiona Patton summed up the general uh, attitude people should hold towards Malcolm Roberts in 2019 when in an official media release she uh, she has said, what a dick. Um, And I know that's my response to anything Malcolm Roberts does, I think. Yeah. I mean, she changed her party name from the sex party to the reason party. But, I mean, calling him a dick is definitely reasonable. Um, At the same time, like, as you said, the One Nation people, I think, have gotten a little bit scared by um, the United Australia Party voluntarily dissolving mm-hmm. this week as well, and they decided to really get attention because now the Yellow Party is gone. Yeah, they, they probably think they can kind of move into that space, but, yeah, I'm, I, I think that kind of politics is on the way out, thankfully, um, and the, the UAE is obviously on the way out. I, their party's still going to stick around, though. They just did this for some, you know, not paying fee reasons. So, yeah. But that brings us to the end of tonight's episode. So, roll, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, Joel, Rory, do you want to, <laughs> Jesus, sorry. So, Joel, Rory, do you want to share your social media handles? Uh, yeah, at Rory underscore Dennis. Uh, Joel W. Doggan. And you can find me at Dodzy161 on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, this has been Edge of the Election. You can find us at Edge Election Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Edge of the Election is part of the Edge of the Crowd network. You can find Edge of the Crowd at Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all good social media websites. You can also read any of our articles be there about politics, sport, or culture at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.